our children, if we allow them to be, can be some of the most profound healing experiences um, because they're literal mirrors. Everything that annoys me and frustrates me about them are unmet, unhealed parts in myself, unexpressed parts in myself. Our children come as like a clean slate. They're not conditioned. They don't know dogma. They don't know wrong from right. They're just this pure innocence, right? And it, we shape them, which is, is a scary responsibility, but also cool when you think about it. You know, my view now is like, how much can I retain of their innocence and their spirit without taking away all those beautiful expressions, which is just so commonly not accepted in society. Pete Isaiah is a trauma therapist and integration coach, supporting individuals and couples to become their most empowered and courageous, authentic selves. This podcast features inspiring conversations with graduates of Pete's shadow work courses and deep dives with experts in the arena of alternative health and current affairs. Here, we're not victims, we're volunteers. Are you in? On today's episode, I speak with the wonderful Rachel Jim Pietro, and she shares openly about her challenges with motherhood and parenting, her challenges with weight gain and food, her ability to be able to make success and, and money, but then her inability to be able to hold it. She also shares about some recent psychedelic experiences she had and talks about her experiences in the shadow work course and how that's impacted her life across dimensions such as family, relationship, health and success. It's a really interesting episode, so enjoy listening. I want to welcome Rachel Giampietro. Beautiful. That's the Italian way to say it. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It's, it's so good to be here. Oh, that's, that's good to hear. And uh, I do want to acknowledge that, you know, when we were setting this up, uh, one thing that I noted was that you were genuinely excited to, mm. to be on this podcast and share. So that lights me up knowing that you really want to be here and you really want to, um, you know, share your experience and your stories. Um, so uh, what I want to say is that you're across so many things. To me, you occur to me as like a high-functioning individual. Um, I don't know if you see yourself that way, but I, I listen to you singing an Adele song on, on your Instagram. I'm like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Why is this woman not a professional singer? But, but you you do all these other things, and then you are just telling me a moment ago that you also had your own gym. So you're just a high-functioning person. And I haven't met your children, but I imagine you're a high-functioning mother. And so – as a coach, and you're a coach too, and I work as a coach, and a lot of people come to me because they're not functioning that well, and then some people come to me because they're highly functioning but want to take things to the next level. Um, and so where, where do we start? I, 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 want to, um, I want to start with the singing because I was really impressed with you singing an Adele song. And uh, if I had my life over again, I'd probably be a professional dancer. Oh, I love that. Mm. Um, and so it's not too late. <laughs> that is also true. <laughs> uh, what, what does singing give you? What does singing and, and music and, and – do you write songs? Yeah, yeah. What, what's that all like and, and how, how do you let do, – is that still a part of your life or have you let that go for these other things that you do? Um, and what do you get out of that? I'm mm. curious. I love these questions. So mm. good. Um, 
So when I look back at my childhood, um, singing and expressing myself through um, even writing poetry, I think I sort of started as as um, a young teenager, has always been something I just innately did. I didn't really get taught it. Um, my dad is a musician and has played um, the piano accordion and the piano from what I remember, but um, he was in a band before he had us kids and um, – toured around Australia, even was the chosen band to go to the Vietnam War. Like, oh, wow. yeah, the more I actually speak to him about it and hear about his musical journey before, I guess, quote-unquote, settling down and marrying my mum and having six kids, um, you know, music was a huge part of who he was and it was kind of the ultimatum of choose a family and or follow your music career because you can't, you can't have both. Um, so he obviously chose a family and... Um, you know, he's worked as a tradie and a, a developer uh, for his life, but he, he let go of his music for a lot of the years and then sort of came back to it when I was uh, younger. So I'm the fifth child of, of the, the six. So I guess seeing him exposed me to music and he always had a big music room and grand pianos and organs and yeah, he's a bit of a piano hoarder, which I'm not <laughs> complaining about because I definitely got to, um, you know, I, I think of my kids now, we didn't have technology back then, but my dad had a, a big room full of instruments and I got to, to, to play around with them. So I did always express myself. I didn't really learn how to play the piano properly until I was about 13 or 14, but I just remember entering a different world and it was my scapegoat. I would come home from school and all I wanted to do was drop my bags and go to the piano and just play. Um, and then my poetry that I would write and bless my dad. I remember he used to take my poetry and he never questioned or wronged me because it was quite deep and sad. I think like, you know, as a teenager at school, I would write my feelings and I would show my dad and he would take his poems to the guys at work on the, you know, work sites. And he was so proud. Um, and he always celebrated me in that way. And then the poetry turned into songwriting um, and it was just my, my way out and my, my escape, which I didn't sort of realize at the time, but that's what it meant to me. Um, and I would find myself, you know, even if we would travel or something thinking, oh my God, what am I going to do without being able to play the piano or sing? And a lot of my childhood memories are, um, with this old school karaoke machine that had this like built in video recorder on it. And my sister and my cousin, we would just write songs and make musicals and that's a lot of the the play we did. Um, so if I look back, it's always been a part of who I was. Um, but I think as, you know, what happens with children and conditioning and, you know, performing in front of people, which I never really would get nervous about, but I, I tried to make my music a career when I left school. I even did. My mum encouraged me to go to TAFE and do music business, so to actually learn about the business side of the industry, which was um, equally really empowering but also showed me that it was going to be a long, hard road to, you know, quote-unquote, get famous um, or to even just make it mm. something that was, you know, a um, money-making career. So I, I lost my passion because it started to become about can I make money from this? Um, and I was doing a lot of gigs um, in pubs that I just didn't feel like people were really listening to my music. I'm just doing cover songs. Uh, I didn't feel comfortable to play my own songs because I didn't feel like people were listening. You know, that it's it's a, it's a my art. It's it's an expression and I, and I want to be received in it. So playing in the background of pubs and clubs is just really wasn't a vibe. And, you know, I did record little mini albums which um, – 
are on Spotify and I still, you know, the cool thing about music is it doesn't age, you know, it doesn't matter how long it's been. Um, music still is, is so unique. Obviously you get better at recording it, but um, the heart of music doesn't age and I, and I love that. Um, but yeah, so for music to me is like a different language and it's something that I've started to realise with my dad as well that, he, you know, he gets that and, and we, we, we have chats about, you know, the way that we would play the piano and that, you know, you can learn all the grades you want, but if you don't have feeling and you don't you don't feel that music, it, it just doesn't come across, and that's what people want is to, to feel something. Um, so, yeah, I didn't play anything. I did. I sort of did the same thing. I ended up, you know, having my kids, and my my eldest is eight now, and I didn't play any music or anything in that time. Um, you know, I might sing in the shower or whatever, but I didn't write any songs or do anything about it or share it or do any gigs until the last sort of 12 months where something was just sparked inside of me and I'd forgotten that part of who I was and I get, got really caught up in, you know, opening my gym, which I loved. But I think especially during the two lockdowns when we got a chance to just sort of stop everything and, and come back to the roots of who we are and there's no distraction and FOMO and this rush, you, you, you kind of just got a chance to be like, oh, where am where was I again? Um, and music, yeah, kind of came back to me and it was um, also recently amplified in um, – my first psychedelic experiences this year as well as part of some of the healing that I've done. Um, I did two and they were both <laughs> in a nutshell musical journeys of just this remembering and this coming back to my gift of using my voice, which um, has kind of led me to sound healing now and, and looking into the benefits of um, sound for, for healing and um, different instruments and different ways to use a voice and yeah, it's kind of like a mind-blowing world that I'm like, how did I not know this earlier? But yeah, when you say high functioning, I guess uh, I am. I'm just interested in so many different things. And that's been hard at times because I don't know where to sort of put my energy. But I'm, I'm, I think I'm finding my ground a little bit now where I can be and do things really well in a lot of things. Um, and just you know, cultivate enough space and time and energy to be able to pour myself into all the different ways of my creative expression. That is a very long answer, but I hope that answers that. <laughs> <laughs> very comprehensive answer. No, that was awesome. Um, you mentioned uh, you've, you did your first two psychedelic experiences this yep. year. And was that with psilocybin mushrooms? Yeah, and MD MDMA. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, MDMA, well, yeah... Uh, MDMA for me is not a psychedelic per se, yeah, okay. even though the experience is certainly a, a, you know, an enhanced experience. Mm. It doesn't f typically fit the category of a psychedelic, but both are, are beautiful experiences. I've, I've done both of those. And and certainly I know what you mean about music um, in, in those spaces is it's just your appreciation of music is enhanced, but also your desire to create music mm. and so and and the music in a psychedelic experience can shape the experience and i find that quite fascinating and you talked about um sound healing and i saw you've got some bowls yep. tibetan bowls uh, crystal bowls on, on your insta and uh in in some of the psychedelic experiences i had it is a whole big sound journey and that sound vibration can be part of the healing and there's a whole subset of science now that's looking at using vibration and frequency for healing mm. i mean it could be ancient but maybe we're reimagining it um with light frequencies sound frequencies um ma magnetism um 
electric charge. Um, I don't know if you've come across Quantum Uplift in in uh, Byron, but they've got a clinic there where they're using vibration and frequency to enhance well-being. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> and the council tried to sh- trying to shut them down because they say you can't make claims about frequency uh, 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 make health claims about that. Mm. <laughs> but um, I think sound, uh, music um, has amazing healing qualities and, and, and properties. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because these are all things that have been around for so long. And like you said, it's like, are we, are we just remembering it? Are we just coming back to it? And I think, um, you know, it's it's interesting that the health industry wants to shut all these things down and claim that they, you know, don't have enough evidence, but I'm sure there's enough <laughs> evidence out there. And it, it just seems too simple, right? That things that are um, created by nature or are, are free, you know, if we've got vocal cords, you can use your voice. Um, you can make instruments of, out of almost anything. Um, it can actually be that simple to receive incredible healing benefits. And um, I know exactly what you mean about the music. I it, I could tell um, that the music in the playlist that I s- selected for the, um, the Mushroom Experience in particular, I, I really sat on it and I was really like umming and ahhing, which playlist am I going to use? And I'm like, why am I making this such a big thing? And I can see that it mattered because it it, create, it curated my whole experience and it was really interesting because there was a lot of songs in there that I'd already had in some of my playlists on my phone, so I was so excited. And there was others that I'd never consciously heard before, but I, I was singing them and like, how do I know this? Um, and even after when I looked at them, um, those songs was had to have been specifically chosen because they had a, a significant like a specific frequency and uh, now what I know about mantras and the power of mantras, some of the songs in there use significant mantras and I'm like, oh, it's not coincidence that these songs were chosen to go alongside the mushrooms um, because together they can create, you know, an amplified experience and that's what kind of just really just, I went into this like whole rabbit hole of like music after that. I was just like, oh my gosh, how did I not know this stuff? And it makes so much sense. And yeah, obviously in those experiences you're – your ego, everything is removed. You're, you, you're really, it's like your truest self is the best way I can ex- experience it. And um, yeah, you're not really wronging yourself for thinking things and moving and expressing. And I used my voice so much and it really opened up this whole door of like um, how how amazingly powerful just sound and music and frequency is, um, which I'm kind of loving just experience, experimenting with at the moment, which yeah, I'd never even knew much about crystal bowls or what they did and I kind of it kind of just it led to that after that experience and um, then learning about the bowls and knowing that you know they all have a significant note that matches obviously the eight notes on a piano Um, and then they match an energy center in the body like I was like oh my god how did I not know this this makes so much sense and it's been so cool to play with and um, to be received in that way as well you know, not wronging myself for talking about calories and macros and proteins and (laughs) um, strength training one minute and, you know, doing my sound bowls and intuitively singing the next, like, you know, I can be so many uh, different things. Great. What was it that piqued your interest uh, to try psychedelics? Mm, Like, How did you go from having never done psychedelics and you'd be what in your – Early thirties, mid thirties, yeah, early thirties, yeah. And so, um, what was it that having not done psychedelics and then in the last twelve months having 
tried two different yeah psychedelic spirits. What what piqued your interest? What got you going? Um, uh, a certain friend and mentor that I'd followed would talk about it a lot, which definitely opened up my mind to it. Um, but, you know, as spiritual as it sounds, I do feel like I was called to it and I know that's an important part of it as well because like anything, literally anything in life, um, it can be misused. It can be used out of context and not in the right way. Um, but it, I just it just felt like the next thing for me. I'd feel like I'd done a lot of self-development um in, in I guess the unco- in the conscious mind a lot of you know learning and, and, and applying in a conscious state uh, something really appealed to me about you know tapping into that unconscious that that psyche that we just can't do I guess in a normal regular state and it, it seems so uh, it makes so much sense to me because I compare it to the state that I go in when I go in labor into the natural labor um, it's literally what the best way I can explain it is like a portal to to another world, you know, um, and I I could understand and, and and I could relate to sort of that feeling of being outside yourself, um, so that really appealed to me, um, and I and I, I I guess I knew someone that I felt I could trust that I would feel safe around, which is exactly the same for labour. You know, you need to feel safe. You need to, I guess, understand what your body is able to do in the right environment with the right tools. So it just made a lot of sense to me and I felt like um, I had all the sort of stars aligning in terms of the right person, trusting them. The right timing came up. I'm in the right phase of my life with my kids where it's, it is easier, even though it, it's still hard in some ways, but it is easier for me to get away and do these experiences and, and allow myself to have the few get, days to integrate. Um, there was just so many things that were just leading to a yes and I was just really curious. I had no idea music was going to come up. I was just like, show me my deep, dark trauma, whatever. Like, mm-hmm. just show me. Like, you know, you always feel like there's still more there. You know, there's still more layers of the onion to, to peel away in your healing. I just felt there was more. I just didn't know what it was and I did not expect it to be music. I Even afterwards, I was like... What was that? That's why I did it again with the MDMA. I wanted something different and I wanted to see if um, if it wasn't just, you know, this whimsical experience. And even though I chose a different playlist and it was a different uh, medicine, I guess, um, it was a very similar thing as well. So I was like, okay, I feel like this is a thing. I'm going to trust it now. <laughs> no, I just didn't. I needed it twice just to trust it. Um, but I can see how people say that it, it can be one of the most profound and, and fastest ways. Not that I'm saying... Fastest is always better, but I can see it's the power of it in the right state and um, in the right context um, is so profound. You just can't access that kind of – those kinds of feelings and perspective and parts of yourself. Um, You know, I feel like it replaces hundreds of hours of of therapy. I don't don't think I would have ever experienced those feelings – and just kind of like that nervous system reset. I just felt cal- recalibrated. Um, it's probably the best way I can explain it. Sounds like both your psychedelic experiences were really positive. Yes. I know that that also is not everybody's experience. Mm. Um, but but they were for me. Some people listening to this might think, oh, you're a mother of two young children. That's quite irresponsible going mm. off and trying some psychedelic. What would you say to those people? Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I No one's directly said that to me, but for the people that I have shared it with have sort of, especially mothers of like, oh, I don't think I could leave my kids for that long and X, Y, Z. And, and I really sort of sat with that and I was like, why did I find it not necessarily easy? It's still always hard to leave my kids, whether I'm going on a retreat with my 
best friend and, and not doing psychedelics or, or, or this. Um, but I think it, that itself, that perspective itself um, could be something that's, that's blocking that person from actually experiencing where they need to go for their healing. Um, it's so easy to use our kids as an excuse, but if I, I was like, if anything, this is for them as much as it is for me because they deserve the most expansive, um, unconditioned, you know, less dogmatic version of me. Um, and that doesn't have to be psychedelics, but I think just whatever you need to do to like get away, like motherhood is like, forever consuming and obviously that's a commitment I've signed up to and and I accept that but I also have come to terms with that me being around my kids 24 7 doesn't mean it's the best thing for them um me taking time away from them um can be for them too especially if I'm there but I'm not really there I'm feeling like you know I need more space and I need more time for myself and and I'm feeling constricted uh that's not a benefit to them that's the way I sort of look at it so if you go off and have a psychedelic experience and that's very nourishing for you yeah. and you get something positive out of that then you bring that home to your children mm, and your like children benefit from I'm not telling them what I'm doing that and I may never yeah, have that conversation sure. but they'll feel it they'll see it and it was also I've gone away a few times not just always to do obviously psychedelics um and especially the older they get it, it is easier they don't need me as much um but they have had they have such a beautiful bonding time with their dad that they don't get when I'm there because I'm 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 the main one right they've been with me so much more you, you just can't make up that time um, but they when I'm not there my husband has to step in a, in a really different way and they get to cultivate their relationship with him and it's actually really beautiful when I come back there's obviously a little bit of a transition time where then they're you know perhaps letting things out that they haven't felt safe to fully let out you know when I'm not there because I'm always going to be that ultimate safety net for them but everyone's like recalibrated and it's really cool when I get to come back like so nourished Mm. and I get to take that time away and think like oh god like who do I want to be when I return and how they've been showing up that I just now that I'm not in that environment and I can see it from, you know, a bird's eye view, what would I change and, and, and how, like, do I, what do I need to change and what needs to change or what do I want to be different or what do I want to be the same? Like, what am I loving that I'm doing and what I'm not? Like, you can't do that when you're in the context of it and you're mm. in the mundane of it. So for me, um, you know, I see so many mothers who, who think that taking time away is a disservice, um, but I'm like, actually go there because if you're hanging on to that I actually think there's some magic in there that um, you could unpack and unfold in whatever capacity that looks like you're creating a sacred space for yourself Um, there's a book called The Sacred and the Profane by Masa Eliad and uh, he's a guy um, who travelled around the world um, exploring all the different versions of shamanism and he talks about you know that we need sacred uh, times and spaces in our life because otherwise it is all mundane yeah and so you go on this retreat you take a bit of time out from your responsibility of being a mother and a partner and you're going to give yourself something that's for you mm. and, and and that juices you up and it, it you got this um, revelation about what music means to you and sound and healing and you looked at what am I doing right what do I want to change and then you come back slightly different version of yourself and then you bring then you're you're more able to give more to to your children than if you hadn't taken that retreat 
And um, I like – somebody once told me that a happy mother can give the child the milk and the honey, but an unhappy mother can only give the milk. Mm. So if, if the mother's happy, she can give more sweetness to her, her children. That. yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, I think that's awesome that even though it's hard to leave your children, you know that – well, this nourishes me. This gives me something that's sacred. Mm. And um, so, yeah, more power to you. That's what I would say to those people. Yeah, and look who like. Would say that you're irresponsible for doing yeah, that. Yeah, and I'm not just a mother. Mm. Like, that's part of what I do and a big part of it. And it means so much to me. But it's not 100% who I am. And I've really had to come to terms with that. And that's going to look different. And obviously, different seasons of your life if you've just had a baby and, you, and you've got a newborn who's like literally depending on you for their absolute survival every minute, every day. Um, you know, it's different. But I, I'm not just a mother. And, and that was for me in that, in those psychedelic experiences, I let go of all of those roles. You know, they're just roles that I play. And also, you know, as much as I'm my children's whole world, you know, they're also here on their own journey and I'm just playing a part of it. And, you know, quite a big part, especially in their younger years, but it's not all up to me. So me being there all the time isn't what I necessarily need to do and it's not necessarily what they need to experience as well for their greatest um, evolution. Sometimes we can get a little bit stuck in that role and, and like you said, you, you're not actually giving them the best parts of yourself. You're just telling yourself that you need to be there. And obviously you don't want to miss a beat and you don't want to miss all these beautiful moments. I get that as well. But sometimes, yeah, just remembering that you're not just a mother um, and, you know, that that you're playing a role in their life too and they've got their life plan here. That's You know, that really helps me as well going like, okay, yeah, it matters and, and my role is uh, – I highly um, – value the role I have as their mother and I want to try and be the best mother I can be and that's usually looking at myself and my own stuff but it's their life's plan is also not completely up to me and it's not my responsibility 24 7 yeah that really helped me as well and plus if you go away and leave them for a little bit they get to experience that they can function and get by without you yeah and they can start to develop incrementally some of their own independence. Yeah, and also like, you know, I have a son and a daughter and, and especially my daughter, like I want her to look back and see that her mum took time away for herself. Like mm. that's what mothers do. They, they're not just the martyr. They're not just there, like they give up their entire life and their entire happiness and everything. You know, that's what a good mum does. Um I think you can be a good mum in so many other ways and I don't want my kids to grow up thinking, oh, okay, as soon as you become a parent or a mother mm. that your, your needs and desires don't matter anymore. Like you, 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 you let that go once you sign up to that. And to a degree, some of it, yeah, you, you do. That's the commitment you make when you become a parent but also it doesn't mean everything and that doesn't always mean that you can't, you know, find a way to have a balance and still be an incredible parent but not be physically there all the time. Yeah, I love that. So you're modelling to your daughter that um, it's not motherhood's not about full hundred percent sacrifice, and no. you don't have to give up everything and be that martyr, and yep. you can have a life. You, mm-hmm. you can, you're more than just a mother. Yeah, and, so, and I want them to give themselves that same permission slip when yeah. they're parents one day, if they choose to be parents. Like, you know, that life doesn't end when you mm. become a parent. Mm. It's so beautiful and you get so many incredible experiences in other ways, and it is constricting in ways too, but it doesn't have to be the end of a beautiful life. Do you think you've 
your journey with psychedelics has ended or just begun or something? No, middle, look, or? I know I'm going to uh, have a break because I do plan to have more children. Um, so, but other than that, I do, uh, I do see myself use having it as a you know regular part of my you know healing or self development work. I, I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it, and I think about it often, especially when I play back those songs. It you know tr- triggers those memories back, and it was it's just. I don't know, it's just such a beautiful, and I know not every experience might be like this for me, but that full surrender, because you do, you have to go into that full state of surrender to just let that medicine take over. Mm. That is one of the most beautiful moments in time. Mm. And like I said, um, parts of labour for me, natural labour, um, offer that as well, which I think is why it can be such a such a healing experience and transformative experience. Um, there's so many ways we can get into those states, you know, even endurance training and, and strength training. There's, there's moments of that where there's like that full state of surrender and your body goes, I guess, into another world. But um, yeah, I, I, I crave that feeling and, and I think we get so much insight in those moments. So I definitely see it as a regular part. It just might Jump and change a bit because, yeah, <laughs> growing and birthing babies in between is, is a little bit of a spanner in the works. Um, I believe uh, this is true that women, some women during delivery or, you know, birthing uh, can release DMT mm. uh, from their pineal gland. And the DMT is a psychoactive substance. It's, it's what's found in ayahuasca. Wow. And that um, activates the, the pineal gland, which is the third eye in, in the Vedic tradition. That's so cool. And then you had see these mystical visions because, you know, the third eye looks in, inwards mm-hmm. at the soul. And so when you say that for you, birthing, and I've heard this from other women say that, you know, it's sort of like a portal and these other dimensions open up and it's like yep. this spiritual experience and uh, that, that can be the DMT being released. Love that. That's yeah. so cool. So you know you can have a psychedelic experience just with with your own chemistry. <laughs> yeah, and that's the like when I learn about the um, psychology of birth when when a woman in, is in a safe when she feels safe um, and learning about what our bodies will naturally do when as a woman when we're in a safe place, I just am mind blown. It just blows me away over and over again of what it actually is designed to do, uh, and a lot of. The problem is that women are not in safe places, um, which is usually hospitals. However, you can still have an incredible hospital experience if you feel safe there. Um, but, yeah, when when you learn about it, that we have this chemical cocktail that is released and designed to help us be able to endure these things and reap the benefits, and it's the polarity. It's not to say that it's an easy, blissful experience. There's, there's a lot of hardness in it, but there's this bliss on the other side of that as well because it's just that polarity. Um it saddens me that a lot of women will never experience that because they're not educated or they're not, um, you know, they're not being treated correctly with their care provider. Like there's, there's so much to it. But, um, yeah, I, I think the power in storytelling and hearing other people's experience, I, I shared my home birth experience with my daughter, so my second. Um, and I, I had so many women message me and say, like, I went on to have a home birth because of your story. And I was just like, oh, my God, I love that. Oh, and, yeah, and um, I had a lot of midwives and a lot of private midwives who do home births ask me if they could use my video to um, share in their courses to encourage more people to be open to home births. And so I know it's creating ripples in so many ways, which brings me so much joy because 
I if I hadn't been exposed to a story of home birthing, I wouldn't have thought it could be a possibility for me. And so, you know, this is why I'm here to tell stories because I think there's so much power in storytelling. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I think I'm about to become a father in soon. Uh, my partner's pregnant. So exciting. Uh, I'm 62, never married, never had any children, so I oh. kind of left it late in life. Um, and, yeah, we're, we're thinking of having a home birth. Yeah. And um, we're very aligned on, on a lot of those kind of things. Um, so, so, yeah, storytelling, the power of story, storytelling and sharing your stories and how that can influence people. They hear something possible for themselves and then they maybe change their game up a bit. Mm. Um, I just want to go back a step to... <clears throat> I want to tie in how psychedelics and the shadow are, yeah. c- are connected. And um, because I never married or had children, I spent a lot of my life traveling around the world. And, and I've done many hundreds of psychedelic experiences because I have a natural curiosity towards the hidden and the occult. And, and so, uh, and not all those journeys were easy and pleasant, and some of them were very difficult and challenging. Um, but what I, what I learned from my psychedelic experiences is that pretty quickly I got to see that who I thought I was isn't all I am. In other words, that we have this persona or this idea of ourselves that we create or this ego that's a construct and we think that's who we are. Then you start taking psychedelics and pretty quickly that mask comes down. <laughs> right off, yep. yeah. And then what's behind that mask, you know, is revealed mm-hmm. and... Um, Jung would say that's what's behind the persona is the shadow. Yep. And I would agree with that. And when I say a lot of my psychedelic experiences were very challenging, they were very dark and shadowy. Um, some people say, oh, you know, I, I did a psychedelic and I had a bad trip. I think, no, you didn't have a bad trip. You just got exposed to some of your shadow and, yeah. and you didn't like Something it. you didn't like, <laughs> yeah. Which was... <laughs> Which is what I was expecting, but I didn't get. But that's okay. It wasn't meant for me in those times. Yeah, generally people's first experience with psychedelics are pretty positive and and, and, yeah, okay. and, and quite feel quite healing and and yeah. um, quite sweet experiences. And and some people are challenged on, on their first one. And I, I never encourage people to do psychedelics. I don't know who it's, who's who it's right for and who yeah. it's not right for. Um, people have to make their own decisions. And there are many pitfalls, as there are promises. And so people need to be wary. Um, Jung called psychedelics unearned wisdom. Mm. So he kind of cautioned against them too. Um, I had some difficult challenges, but I, I want to go back to what I learned from, from my psychedelic experiences is that I have a shadow. <laughs> I'm not just this persona, this, this positive Pete that likes to present this perfect yeah. picture. Mm. Uh, I've got a whole lot, whole lot of shadowy stuff in, in there and so... I become fascinated with this concept of shadow and exploring it. And, and another thing I've been up to as well as doing psychedelics is that I'm also a trauma therapist. And so listening to people's stories of trauma over and over again for thousands and thousands of hours also informed me about the shadow because I'm like, why, why do these hurt people keep hurting people? Why is this generational trauma being passed down? from grandfather to parent to child and, and so on. And that's one of the reasons why I delayed having children to this point in my life is because, you know, I had a traumatic childhood and I thought that if I don't do some healing, I'm going to pass that on to my children. And so I decided not to have children but to do some healing first and, and now I'm ready to, to take that next step. Um, and so, so I became fa- – so, so the trauma – 
by doing trauma therapy, I'm like, what's behind all this trauma? And then I'm like, well, it's the unintegrated shadow. And I, and I think that if my parents had integrated their shadow and done their trauma work, they wouldn't have passed their trauma on to me. So that's what I've learned. And so that's why now my passion is really helping people, supporting people who are interested in shadow work to, to do that and to look at those bits of themselves, those unowned or disowned bits of self and reintegrate them into a healthy personality. And so I created the shadow boxing course, which you recently did. And one of the reasons I asked you to be here today is because I wanted to, for you to share your experience with – so you've done a couple of psychedelic journeys in the last 12 months and interestingly they would have revealed a little bit of your shadow to you and then you got curious about, oh, I'm going to – so what, what was it that – I asked you what got you into psychedelics. What was it that piqued your interest in shadow work? Yeah, um, another great question. A lot of uh, – I guess I – didn't really realize what I was doing in the beginning was shadow work. It's only really sort of come to my understanding and knowledge in the last sort of one to two years of what actually shadow work is. Um, but what really sparked my, I guess, self-development journey was having my son, so becoming a mother. Uh, <laughs> it turned my whole world upside down. And it's interesting because I know there's, you know, it, there's two two sides really. People that don't even know that they need to work on themselves have kids and you're like, what the hell, which was me. Uh, and then there's amazing conscious human beings like yourself who, is, who are like, whew, I do not want to bring children into this unless I feel like I've at least explored some areas of myself. And I think uh, either way, you cannot possibly prepare for what will come up from your ch- children. I think there is no way mm. that I could have ever prepared myself for that and I think that's what our children come here to do if you choose to believe that you know your children are here for a purpose and you have a soul spirit baby uh, which hopefully many of the lessons nisses, listeners listening to this will relate with um, I, I could never have known or prepared that I was going to have my whole world turned upside down by my son um, you know, he really questioned what I thought was a good baby and what made me a good mother you know he didn't I he didn't follow what the baby book said he would do and, you know, it's it just he cried a lot and he whinged a lot and I, and I made that mean something about me that, and I just struggled for the first year because I resisted who he was and what he wanted from me so much. I was so caught up in what other people were thinking, what other babies the same age were doing. I couldn't just see this beautiful soul for who he was. Um, I was just so caught up in, in how wrong he was um which you know I look back now and I feel so much I can feel so much guilt about but I also fully accept that I didn't have that awareness and you know there's a part of him that chose here to come here to have that experience for for me so um that really uh <laughs> it wasn't a choice to look at myself I, I I kind of just came to that when he was about one and a half uh we were right away on a really big family trip and um my mum bless her, was watching him most of the day. We are in Canada over a white Christmas and all I wanted to do was just escape him and just ski all day. And, and um, you know, it's like I didn't want to be a mother. I was like, oh, this is so annoying. All I want to do is just go and ski and um, I don't want to be around him. And I sort of just had a – I remember I just had a moment where I was like sat on the top of these beautiful hills and I was like, oh, my God, this is so wrong. Like I should not want to be here and not there with him. Um I don't even like alcohol. I don't 
I don't drink and I've never done drugs or anything. I've never even smoked before. Like, um, so that says a lot about my, you know, psychedelics experience as well. But, um, I just found myself wanting to drink just to make myself feel better. And I was like, this is not me. Um, and so I made the choice in that moment to go and see a motherhood counselor. That's where I sort of started. Um, and she was amazing. I, it just was a space for me, I guess, to just share what I what I experienced. And um, she really exposed me to um, a more gentle, aligned way of parenting um, rather than really trying to squish my son and his behaviour and his expressions a lot, which is, is common um, advice to most new parents. is like, well, if your baby doesn't sleep, like sleep, train harder. You know, if they have tantrums, set stricter boundaries and, and reinforcements. Like it's not – it doesn't actually allow the child to express and to, to find some, like a healthy middle ground and understand child, child, normal children, brain development and emotional development. Um, I also – I look back now and I'm like, I couldn't even deal with my own emotions. So how was I supposed to deal with a child that has no words to even articulate? So that there was just so much that was coming up, um, which are your shadows. So that's why I think our children, if we allow them to be, can be some of the most profound healing experiences um, because they're literal mirrors. Everything that annoys me and frustrates me about them are unmet, unhealed parts in myself, unexpressed parts in myself. And so our children come as like a clean slate. They're not conditioned. They don't know dogma. They don't know wrong from right. Um, they're just this p- pure innocence, right? And it, we shape them, which is, is a scary responsibility, but also cool when you think about it. Um, but, you know, my view now is like how much can I retain of their innocence and their spirit without, you know, taking away all those beautiful expressions, um, which is just so commonly not accepted in society. People don't like loud, annoying children. Um, you know, children that whinge and, and voice their opinion and cry and have tantrums and say no and don't want to do this. Um, and it's hard to raise a child that is defiant and free-willed, but it's also um, an invitation for me to let go and to really question, like, why do I say no about that? Why does that annoy me? Why why am I not okay with that? Um, rather than just stick to sort of these rules that I was told as a child or experienced as a child. So that's really where my um, – I didn't know it was shadow work at the time, but, mm-hmm. yeah, that's sort of really where it sparked for me. And then um, I guess just realising that shadow work is really the foundation for, I guess – any area of your life that you want to improve um, yourself, your parenting, your relationships, your business. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's everything. And I think when you can see things through a shadow work lens, um, you can get some really quick results because most often shadow in one area is showing up in so many other areas as well. And, you know, we've got patterns that carry across in the way we view money as well as food and our relationship to our body and our relationship to others. And like you, you find a pattern and you can sort of unpick it in many areas of your life. So that's what I really love about shadow work. Yeah, well, it's awesome. I love so much in that that I want to unpack. Um, so having your child was what introduced you first to it revealed some of your shadow and it came up. I want to ask you what particular aspects of your shadow came up. Before that, I just want to share a story. Um, I was in a men's group a few years back, probably five or six years ago, 
and there was one of the guys in, in the men's group. He was a GP, local G- He still is. He's a local GP in this area. He's a married guy with, I think, three children. And he came up to me after the group session one night and he said to me, oh, Pete, I just need to have a chat with you. I need to share something with you. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, what's going on? He says, um, I feel really uncomfortable about this, but uh, the other day I had this fantasy about grabbing my three children and throwing them at the wall. Mm. <laughs> right? <laughs> and um, I just... Uh, I said, yeah, I says, I can imagine kids must push your buttons, you know, and, you know, you, you GP, you work hard, you probably come home, you're probably tired and your children are going to challenge you in every way imaginable and it's okay to have those fantasies. Like, I, I get you're probably horrified that you had that fantasy and that vision, but I didn't see it as a bad thing. I just saw it as an aspect of his shadow that probably shocked him and I think it was helpful for him to be able to admit that yeah and and then i i didn't get horrified or feel like i needed to call the department of children's yeah. services and have him taken away from his children none of that it was just an aspect of himself that was just an expression uh, a shadow expression of his frustration level mm-hmm. and so i kind of normalized it and made it okay and um and he felt i think by me taking that approach with him he felt okay and was able to calm himself down about it he was probably feeling quite guilty about having those kind of things. Um, so, so um, and as far as I know, he's still doing great as a dad, still married, and his kids are doing fine. Um, what what aspects of your shadow, like you're in Canada having a, a white Christmas, you're going off skiing, having some drinks, and you're not wanting to be around your son, which, so how did you feel about that? Like, I just don't want to be around him. I just want to go off and have a hedonistic good time did that bring up any feelings of guilt or yeah. like what parts of your natural self that you had been suppressing were starting to come up yep. and were you able to make yourself feel okay about those things those parts of self yeah I mean probably the biggest feeling I felt was shame and even as you're uh, sharing that experience I thought you know every parent that would admit something like that um, would feel an undenying amount of shame and I know that shame grows in the shadows and to alleviate shame is to to speak about it. Um, so him just sharing that would have helped so much. And that's what seeing that motherhood counsellor for me was like, oh, I can just let this stuff out, which mm. was already so healing because I didn't have to keep it in my shadows anymore. Um, but I did. I felt so much shame and guilt and, and I tried so desperately to fall pregnant. Um, I had struggled um, unexpectedly. I was like what I thought was healthy. Um, and yeah, I, it was 12 months, which isn't that long in the scheme of things. And I know a lot of people struggled to fall for a lot longer, but as a 23 year old, you know, young girl that felt at the peak of her health and fitness to, to struggle to fall pregnant was just debilitating. And when I finally did, and one felt, you know, so sick in the first trimester and, you know, the novelty wore off very quickly. But then I had this child that then I felt so frustrated at. There was just so much shame because I was like, oh, my God, you you wanted for this for so long. Like, this this is it and you can't change this child. And so then I felt so ashamed that, you know, I asked for this and um, I worked so hard for this and, and now I'm not enjoying it. So, again, and, and, and from what I know no, about shame now is that, you know, it's a very powerful distraction tool because it keeps us stuck in our shadows. It keeps us from actually 
acknowledging how we feel and then choosing to do something about it. It's much easier and familiar for our ego to just stay in our shame, uh, whether we're conscious we're choosing that or not. So, you know, choosing to look at our shadows is hard because we have to face those things and we also have to be willing to, you know, um, no longer get the benefits from, you know, what keep us in our stories and our shame, you know. So it, it's hard to choose to work on yourself and to, to face these things. It's sometimes just easier to just stay in it even though it's, it's just misery. So, um, yeah, there was a lot of shame that I felt, uh, but that quickly turned to empowerment eventually because then I was like, you know, I was expressing myself, I was – um, you know, being exposed to sort of different ways of looking at my son. And then I felt more empowered where I was like, okay, I don't have to change him anymore. I actually just get to change me and my perspective and my expectations. And he hasn't changed, but everything feels like it's changed. Right. And and it was so powerful because I was like, wow, all along, this has not been a him problem. <laughs> this has been a me problem. That's a great example of shadow work, Um in action because we hide shame. That's what makes it shame. We, we don't go telling everybody yeah. what we feel shameful, so shameful about. about yeah. Yeah. It, 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 shame is, is a big significant part of our shadow. And things that I'm ashamed of are generally things that I'm going to hide from everybody and sometimes even from yourself. Things that you're ashamed about, you'll even hide them from yourself. Yeah, you'll, you'll deny that you even there. have that. Yeah. Yeah, and so... So you had this shame of I should be showing up as a better mother, I should be enjoying this, I'm not enjoying this and and so you're shaming yourself and like you were saying, but you were hiding that, you weren't talking to anybody about that and it grows, like you said, yeah. it grows in the shadow and becomes and has this power over you and it's very debilitating. And then you went and saw this mother therapist or counsellor and you were able to share your shame, yep. your shameful thoughts or feelings and in doing that, you're taking it out of the – so our shadow is just what's hidden. Yep. It's not what's dark or bad. It's just what we're mm. hiding from ourselves. And so when you shared your shame with, with the counsellor, you're no longer hiding it. Yep. So it loses its power. Yeah, it didn't have power over me. And she didn't shame you, did she? No. Uh, it, it was so beautiful. Like I look back now and I was in such a fragile um, – righteous state that I was convinced that it, you know it was my son not me um and the way that she would word her responses and and get me to change my perspective um was so empowering and it was done in such a beautiful way um because I know as a coach that can be really tricky to, come, to kind of know that the person in front of you is kind of choosing their own victimhood here but how do I say this in a way that isn't offensive so that they straight away put these walls up and and think that you're just another person that doesn't understand me. Um, so she would word things because, you know, I, I would say that, you know, my son would just have his tantrum and she would say, what do you say to him? And I would say, you know, stop it, you're being silly. And the way that she would respond would be something like, um, you know, do you think it's actually silly though? Do you think he understands what it is that he's experiencing? And if he doesn't have the words, how else do you think that he should be expressing himself? And I, and I couldn't answer it. Mm. And she said, what if you said this instead? And then I would go and try it and it would work. And I would see my son like look at me like, oh, my God, you see me. 
And then that would heal part of myself where I'm like, God, where have I not been seen? Mm. Where, where am I craving to be seen? And where am I not expressing myself? Like, what can he actually teach me here? Wow. Like, I was like, oh my God, I'm looking <laughs> at this so different um, because of, you know, a perspective shift. And, and it all started from me sharing, you know, the gunk, I guess. It felt like at, at, at the time of, of stuff that I, I couldn't even say it to my husband. I couldn't say it to anyone I knew because I would just feel, like you said, so ashamed to say yeah. that. Do you remember what it was that she said, told you to say to your son when he was having a tantrum? That, oh, that changed it when you went home and you said that and then it settled him down? I don't remember the specific words. I mm. just remember her relaying this as sort of like an, an energy and an understanding. Right. Um, and more of like instead of to, to dismiss whether that's with words or my hand or my mm. body language right. to come down to his level yeah. and to empathise and, and to not actually try and stop it. Right. To just let him. To not, to not make it wrong, to not make it yeah, silly. which to, is like seriously the last thing you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, but – yeah, I don't remember specifically the words, but I just remember her saying, you know, try try this sort of energy or something. And, yeah. it, and it depends on the, the context of the situation. But Yeah, you I, probably went from making it wrong to making it okay yeah. for him to express himself. And, and you think way. it's like never going to end, but mm. actually they just want to hit a peak mm. and then they'll regulate. And that's right. actually how children learn to regulate. When mm. we stunt their emotional mm. growth, they never learn how to – find the peak of an expression mm. and then the inevitable come down. And that's something I've only really learned from my beautiful friend who's in, in the trauma space as well is that a lot of adults are emotionally stunted children in adult bodies <laughs> because we're not, we're not ever taught of, of like – and we're not ever allowed to reach a peak of an emotion. And I forget the statistics, but if we actually experience an emotion, it doesn't really last very long, does it? Um, no, once you once you allow yourself to feel it, it dissipates yeah. pretty quickly. But if you don't allow yourself to feel it, it'll hang prolongs, around. Prolongs, and yeah. so you know, then it turns into this messy accumulation of fully yeah. unexpressed emotions, all in these micro moments. A- an unexpressed feeling will harden into an attitude. Mm. So if I'm not expressing my feelings about something, I'll actually develop an attitude. Yeah, about or it. like a belief system yeah. about something yeah. when it's really just comes back to just something amp- you weren't fully allowed to express. And so, you know, I um. I can see so it's, – it's so interesting now that I have children and I observe adults in their behaviour and I can see that there's all these wounded children that we're not mm. able to express. And, um, you know, it just gives you a little bit more understanding into people and why they act and behave the way that they do. And it also then, again, fuels me back into the empowerment of like, well, what can I humanly possibly do with understanding that I'm still a learning, growing, evolving human myself and that – I am definitely going to F my kids up in some way, shape and form. But that's not to say that that can't be a gift to them in some way. I mean, if I wasn't effed up by (laughs) caregivers and friends at school or whatever, I wouldn't have had this desire to want to heal and coach people and, you know, um, look at myself. So it's not necessarily a bad thing, but can I do it in just like the smallest way possible and Mm. and really, you know, at least – do as much as I can to raise, um, I guess, untouched souls is the best thing that I want. Is like just my children in as mu- as close to their natural state that they came here as yeah. as possible, as who they really are. As, as as a child's growing, it's it's forming and creating its own persona, its yeah. own shadow, and basically, um, as a child grows, it, the things it says that it is becomes yeah. its persona, and the things that it says it isn't becomes the shadow. And so, if you're shaming a child 
for certain natural expressions, mm-hmm. then the, the child's going to put that in their shadow. Yeah. And some of the things that you're shaming them for may actually be just normal yep. um, emotional expressions yep. and, and things that they do need to learn to self-regulate. And so, yeah, I guess it's a bit of a dance and an art to know how to um, support your child regulating their emotion without shaming it, making mm. it wrong, making them feel guilty about it. The moment they think something's wrong or bad, they're going to suppress and deny that aspect yep. of themselves. And, um, yeah, that could mess them up. And so I think... Um, it's about allowing them to express themselves freely and then give them some guidance and some understanding and not making things wrong and they'll learn to self-regulate. Like you, I think kids do that through their own socialisation processes from their peers. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously they're learning from everybody around them and, the, you know, there's certain phases of actual brain development where it, it becomes more possible for them. Um, you know, and I see it between even the three years difference in my two kids of where my son, I can see that... As he's older, he can regulate. Like I can see him feel the peak of an emotion and come down a lot quicker than my daughter who's three years behind. So, you know, you do – and I don't know. My midwife <laughs> called the first child the, the fuck-up child because <laughs> unfortunately you make all your mistakes on them. The second one, you're like, okay, well, I'm not going to do that again. But there's still always learning experiences. But, um, you know, especially my son is paving the way really and I'm getting to experience things first with him all the time because he's the first one to go through this age – um, bracket and and first things as he grows older as well so yeah there's there's all of those elements as well so you've made some mistakes with your son oh my god i still do yeah. and my daughter have you made a list of them so that when he's old enough you can oh no have god. a conversation I'd run so out these, of are paper. The, these are these are all the mistakes I've no made, and you? you know what there's one thing that i have told myself and i tell myself this every day because this is probably one thing that i wanted and i assume most people actually would want from their parents is for them to just accept that like I just tell myself if my son comes to me or maybe he has a social media blog or something and he writes about you know how he was treated as a child and he didn't get this from his parents I'm I'm fully open to his experience being completely different than the intention that I've set and and being willing to let my walls down and my defensive mechanisms of where I'm like, you have no idea how much work I did on myself and how much you got that I didn't get and all of those kinds of things that parents do of like, you had a good, don't tell me you didn't have a good, I didn't traumatise you, all of those kinds of things. I am fully prepared that as much as I can do all this work on myself and think I'm doing a fantastic job, he is receiving things through his own lens and his own experience and they're going to be things that I miss all the time. And he may grow up and have all these gaps that he needs to go and fill that I created and I'm okay with that. And I just want him to know and my daughter and any other children that I have that I know that I will fully accept that at any given time I was doing my best and that may not be the best for them. It may not be enough for them and I'm okay with that because that's all I think I would want from my parents or anyone would want from their parents to be like, hey – you effed me up in these ways and to be like, yeah, you know what? I probably did. I didn't mean to and I didn't know any better. I think, you know, there's so many wounds that we have and we're just not seen in our experience. You know, we grow up and we realise we have this inner child and we're like, oh my God, I didn't get this and, you know, and there's so many parents who are not able to see, don't want to see, don't want to admit, don't even want to go there. That's probably their shadows but they don't want to even go there. I've clients in my coaching practice that, you know, 
and my trauma therapy practice where they've had horrific experiences through their parents and I encourage them to go and have conversations with their parents about you know what didn't work for them about that and when they go and uh, address their parents the parents are in complete denial yeah. and, and just say that never happened you're yeah, making that, that up is, like so yeah. so such a complete denial it's it's really quite they're unable to see that aspect of their shadow because I, it's I wonder, too hard i wonder if that is an actual disassociation process mm. though yeah, because i've heard that so much as well and and i can even see it in my parents of like i didn't do that mm. it's like do you not remember? And I'm like, mm. maybe it is actually a protective maybe mechanism. Maybe they chose to forget. Yeah, like I, I, that doesn't surprise me and that's mm. not what people want to hear but I, mm. I've heard it so often it makes me think. I actually think maybe they're being serious of like I, that's, that didn't happen. I'd love a, my parents to have come to me and said, here's a declaration of the mistakes I think I made with you. Yeah. That would be great. That would yeah. be like a real, okay, yeah, thanks for, thanks for and taking the time. Because sometimes we don't see it at the time. Things. Maybe it's in hindsight that I'll look yeah. back and think, geez, I thought I was really doing the right thing by that and I, and I, and I didn't. Um, but I'm just, I always just tell myself, be receptive, be open. If, if he makes little comments or they make little comments of like, I hate how you moved me schools. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I moved you to the best school ever. It's mm. like, but they didn't experience that way. Yeah. Can I be okay with that? Mm. And so, you know, this comes back to that whole like, oh, how can you go and leave your kids for a retreat or whatever? Like you think that's like going to be a bad thing for them, but you could be doing things every single day that they're thinking <laughs> is bad for them, but you're there. Do you know what I mean? Like you can't win no, no matter what you do. So I'm like, no, you know what? I do know and I do hope that the best version of myself is the best I can do for them. It's not about winning, is it? Yeah. I mean, you don't want to win. Well, there's no right. It's not a race. It's you, what are you winning? You'd be happy to break even yeah. raising your children. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's an achievable goal. Yeah. Um, so, I'm trying to remember some of the things that you brought with your intention to shadow it. Was there something around money that yeah, you were wanting? There was, wasn't there? Yeah. Can, can you share from that perspective, like when you brought that, what what was your issue with money, and what, did the shadow work cause? Um, help you in any way look at your money shadow and what did you get from that yeah it was a really interesting time in my life when I joined the shadow work course because um, I had just sort of transitioned from years of you know financially getting by you know I opened my I chose to go from working for someone else on a you know pretty decent salary and, and my husband was working at that um, business as well. We didn't meet there. We just sort of ended up working there together. We we're both on pretty much full-time salaries, um, worked for an epic guy like really good um values and morals like you know we quote unquote had it all but there was both of us that kind of just had that spark that the work that we were doing wasn't fulfilling for our soul and so I left first because when I fell pregnant with my daughter for my second pregnancy um I had the vision for strong mamas which was a health and fitness platform I ended up opening a gym and did online coaching as well for mums and pregnant women um, because that was something that helped me a lot with my first experience. Um, so having my son and, like I said, when I was sort of in the throes and depths of motherhood, um, going to the gym often was off, often like my escape where I could just like let go and, and the physical metaphor of me strength training reminded me that I have internal strength as well and, and it became so much more than what it used to be about burning calories and wanting to look skinny and toned and it became this like ultimate outlet and, and, and nourishment for me. And so I was like, wow, I want to do something with this, which is where the vision of Strong Mamas came. So I left that job and, you know, went out as a business owner and 
gone from never working on a gym floor to opening my own gym and it, I just I did not doubt myself and had my daughter three months old with me 24-7 running a gym, doing personal training classes, online clients in between, like literally living and breathing fitness and clients, which I loved for about the first year or so. My husband ended up leaving his office job to come over because I was just growing so big. Um, so we both sort of did that, both pre and postnatal trained and, and we were – We'd hit the ground running and, and didn't really realise um, how tough it was to continue doing that until we had the first lockdown and, and sort of stopped and went like, whoa, we were like swimming in work. And I'm like, I don't actually, I can't separate my work life from my motherhood and, and I'm, I'm feeling a little bit, you know, uh, and I chose this and we would look at our financials and running a gym was very expensive and things were only going to go up from there. So my financial status for those three years was literally getting by. Um, and then when we invent eventually after the second lockdown, we decided to close our gym and I just decided to like do a big overhaul on our expenses rather than trying to focus on earning more money. I was like, how can I just spend less? I need a break. I need to give myself a break. And I just felt lost. Like I said, this music passion was coming back, but I'm a health and fitness trainer and what do I want to do with my life? And yeah, so there was so much with that and, and I'd felt a chokehold financially for so many years. And um, I've grown up in um, a wealthy family and very well-off parents and, you know, in a big house that could, you know, sleep six kids and more. Um, so it, it was very interesting that I still had a lot of money stories, even though money never been scarce for me as a child or growing up and and I you know still have parents that I can rely on financially so um when I had come to you in the shadow box course of course the last sort of six to 12 months I'd completely flipped my financial status upside down and I'd done a big overhaul of my expenses and changed a whole bunch of things and you know um it was an accumulation of things but one of the biggest things was selling our house that we had ended up making quite a bit of money on and and so having not a lot of money was no longer a legitimate story I could tell myself yet I still had the exact same perception to money and I felt scarce and I and I felt um almost overwhelmed like oh now I have too much and it's like what <laughs> you, you you told yourself or you, you'd feel better if you, you had more money and, it, and it's like instantly I was like oh my god I feel worse what is this like now I feel it's too much to hold and so it was interesting because I was like, oh, I think there's some shadows here that I've been just denying that is my lack of money. And there's an element of truth to that because, you know, we need money to survive. So like, obviously, but I think a lot of what I was telling myself about my relationship to money wasn't actually because I didn't have enough. Um, and perhaps they were the things that were blocking me from receiving more. And so I remember sort of sharing this with you and you reflected, um, you know, not being a victim, but being a volunteer to my experience, which really is so simple. But I was like, oh, yeah, I have been choosing to be a victim. Like I chose those – I chose to open a gym and, and I chose to run it in that way and then I chose to close it and then I chose to move back to my parents. Like I chose all those things. I was not a victim to that. Mm. I have choice. And I think you said to me the only instant that where we can genuinely be a victim is as a child because – they're literally helpless. Other than that, if you have choice in any way, you're choosing to be a victim. Mm. But you could just choose to be a volunteer to your experience. Mm. And that way you can separate yourself from it. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> that is life-changing. And so, yeah, it's sort of made me 
um, just remove myself, the emotional attachment I had to, to money and, and change my relationship to money and um, also realise what was I actually seeking that I thought having more money would fix that it didn't. And so, yeah, there was just like a whole lot of things there that was, sounded so simple but was very profound. Mm. So, yeah, that's, that's – um, so if, if I identify as a victim in any area of my life, relationships, health – money, whatever, if I identify as a victim, I'm already disempowered because yep. I feel uh, the implication is that um, this outside force is messing with me rather than I've created this myself. Yeah. And so with the, the moment you shift your perception of self from, oh, no, I'm volunt- I've made every choice I've made as an adult, as a volunteer, then the situation that is self-created, now I'm empowered to change my perception of it or do something about it. But if they're forces outside of myself, then I'm disempowered. Yep. So sometimes just that small change in perception can create quite a significant different outcome. Mm. So what was your money story? You, it was something to do with scarcity. It's like I come from a wealthy family or reasonably wealthy family. I've lived in a big house, so there's no scarcity there. We've sold our house and made some money on it, so there's no scarcity there, but still there's some story in the background running. Were you able to identify what – because for me a story – we all have stories, a collection of stories, and our money story quite often is a self-limiting belief that's unconscious. And by looking at what our money story is and changing it, we can change our money game up. Yep. And so were you able to identify what, what was behind that – it's not – the. The thirst when your well is full is a thirst that's unquenchable. Mm. So if I've already got all this money but I'm still feeling scarce, yeah. there's something else it? going on. Yeah, yeah. So there, were, there were a few things um, and, it, and it's interesting. Like even though as a child I probably didn't even realise – like I, I literally didn't even realise I had a big house or, you know, wealthy parents until like year seven when all the girls came over for a party and then like the next day everyone in my grade was talking about my house. And I like – visually remember driving down our driveway and then being like is it big and like just looking from side to side and like oh, I guess it is big I d- it just didn't click to me which just shows the nature of a child like they don't they do not they don't know dogma and wrong or right or big or small like that was just what I grew up in that's mm. all I knew my house to be so um but I do – my parents are very different my dad was you know working all the time and so I guess I associated um the only way to have and keep money is to be working hard all the time. As soon as you stop working, you, st- you stop earning. And so that's what I had just seen. And he did retire early because he sold one of his businesses. And um, I don't remember too much about it, but even when they share stories um, that, you know, I don't know if it was like the financial status at the time or something. They then sort of dipped into a little bit of scare, like a little bit of scarcity and not not so great financial financial position. And my dad's been a developer like continuously over and over again, so it's not been a constant I- stream of income. So I, I naturally would have probably unconsciously observed flows of like bouts of money and then bouts of tightness. And so even though from the outside we were fine. I probably experienced changes in his nervous system and, and relationship to money. And then my mum on the other end is um, is the spender. <laughs> my dad's like 
major tight ass. Like everybody <laughs> laughs and says that like moths are going to fly out of his wallet because he like never gets it out. And like even when my mum was away and we used to be like, Dad, can we have like money for the movies? He'd give us like $5 and be like, that's enough, isn't it? And we're like, oh my God, do you ever like go out and buy things? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I experienced two different relationships to money. And so there was like I always had these two voices in my head and I couldn't find a middle ground um, of like, you know, work really hard and, and don't spend your money and then you know life's here to to spend you know and to enjoy yourself um so there was that as well but it was also like my capacity to hold money I didn't realize I didn't have a big window of tolerance to hold things and I and I also can see that in um my weight or like my success as a coach or like my ability to like hold success Mm. was it was uncomfortable Mm. and so that was reflected to me um and then the scarcity of it running out and not having more and it like when is enough like what if it runs out what if I like get complacent and compliant what if I spend it and I don't make it back and so there was this lack of trust in in earning and receiving more and and then I was like oh my god all I know is is like working hard and I'm not really working hard at the moment but I don't want to work hard I did that at the gym and we weren't even making money and so I was like oh my god how the hell do you make money without working your ass off um so there was like all of these stories that came up um which unknowingly led me to finding other ways and that's something I do pride myself on and you know you call it a high functioning but I'm highly adaptable and I'm in, I'm curious and inquisitive and both my parents but particularly my mom has taught me to like never take no for the first answer Mm. and to like find a way there is always a way out there success leaves clues go and find a way and so um I chose to look at this stuff that was coming up as a gift to be like okay well if you've tried it this way and that doesn't feel good go and find experiences Go and look for people who are doing it a different way and go and ask questions and go and look at things. And I found all these different ways of setting up Mm. my business and structuring my prices differently. And like I work way less now than I have ever done and the money that comes into my bank account is way more than I ever had. Wow. So, (laughs) yeah, it was just really interesting that all that timing came up when I was doing a shadow work course and I was like, whoa, there's actually heaps in this. But I'm so glad because... I kept telling myself all my issues were because I didn't have enough money. Um, but when I look back, I, I had enough to get, like, uh, I wasn't homeless. I was I was paying my bills. I was doing all the things. I wasn't able to do lots of extra things, which I love to do. But I was still, still had enough. So it was just really interesting, all of those things, which I'm, st- I'm still looking at. I'm, I'm not saying that I'm perfect and my money heals a story. My money stories are healed. I think that's probably the biggest misconception about shadow work is like you look at a few shadows and you're done. <laughs> it's like an <laughs> right. ever, ever, ever growing no, thing. There's always something that you're hiding. There's always something else. Interestingly, um, I think you know this because I tell the people that do the shadow work, as as I'm coaching the shadow work course, I'm also doing it. Yeah. So I repeat it as a mm. student because I'm always open to looking for new parts of my own shadow. Yeah. And my money shadow came up, in I think, in the group that you did. Yeah. In the course that you did. And I, I remember sharing it and I'll share it now um, because, you know, people may want to know what is a money story and what is a money shadow. Well, for me, my, my first experience with money was in primary school, so probably grade one or two, something like that. And I went to a Catholic convent school where there were nuns and things. And, and so we would be given <coughs> – my first experience of money was being given money 
to take to school to buy my lunch from the tuck shop. And so I'd be given some money and I had it was I could do what I want with it and I was going to buy my lunch with it. But then there was whenever there was money left over, I didn't know what to do with the money that was left over. Do I take that home and give it to my parents? Do I spend that on other stuff? Mm. What do I do? Well, the convent had their own ideas of what I should do with that leftover money and in my classroom there was pitch, pictures of starving Biafran children on the wall and, and the Catholic missions and how they were collecting money and that this money could be taken to feed these starving children. And so, and there was um, a box where you could put your excess money in to give to these children. And so, so that's what I did with, with the extra money that I had. And that was my, I didn't realise it at the time, um, that really impacted me and influenced my thoughts around money so that I've been lived my approach to money my money story for my, most of my adult life has been any money that I have that's in excess to what I need I should be giving away mm. to I others to that, who yeah. need it more and yeah. that became my whole MO around money and I've made significant amounts of money, but I've given most of it away in one form or another. Yeah, I remember sitting in a in a sushi restaurant in Perth at lunchtime with a couple of my mates, and there's about forty people in there, and um, I just stood up in in the middle of my lunch, and I just shout, I just said, got everyone's attention. I said, "Oh, lunch is on me today." You know, I bought everybody's lunch like complete strangers. Yeah, like, I don't know why I did that. Because yeah. I, I'd, I'd made a bunch of money and I just thought, oh, I've got more than I need, I should give it yeah. away. Yeah. Those people didn't need me to buy their lunch, but mm. but my story was I should be giving away. So I've not accumulated much money, yeah. even though I've made a lot, I've not accumulated it because I believed that I should give away anything that's in excess. Yeah. And that came up in, in, in just recently, only six months ago, whenever it was we did that course. And so now my money story is that I'm going to make the money that comes to me through doing the things that I love and I'm going to hold on to my money and if there's money that's in excess of my needs, I'm not going to automatically just give that away. I'm going to wait and see and sit with it and mm. see what else, what other things could I do with it other than just give it away. Maybe there's, yeah. maybe there's more dynamic things I could do than just give it, give it away. And so, you know... The other day I was walking down the street in the local town here and there's a homeless guy with his hands out, you know. And, you know, the earlier version of me would have naturally just given him some money. And it took everything in me to just walk past him and not give him some of my money. And, of course, then the shadow comes up. Oh, you you cruel person, you mean person, how dare you. Um, that could be God there in disguise yep. testing you, and all Failed. these yep. yeah, all these <laughs> fantasy thoughts came up, and so that it was really difficult for me to challenge my own yep. money shadow. And so, you know, if I am successful financially and money comes in, then maybe I can do great things with that money other than giving it away. Just giving it away, yeah. And, and and a lot of the money that I gave away wasn't appreciated anyway. I, say, I, yeah. I gave five cars away. You know, one of them to my nieces, and and they they tr- trashed it and wrecked yeah, it because wow. they they didn't value it because they they didn't earn it. So, I'm learning not to give things away. But I learnt as a five or six year old my money story, mm. and it's only now as a 62 year old that I'm rewriting that money story. And so, yeah, the reason I wanted to share that is because I think everybody does have a money story. Yeah, whether they realize it or not. Um, mm. 
Yeah, that's really interesting and I can relate in that and it's that, that, that lack of ability or that wobbling of like how do I hold abundance and, and, and yeah, what happens when I have a lot and too much? What do I do with it? <laughs> it's like I feel uncomfortable when I have too much so I'm like, oh, my God, I should be doing something with this it's, and, and I found myself being like, oh, my God, I don't, I don't want it sitting in the bank and obviously, you know, you can go down the whole rabbit hole of your money not really being safe in the bank as well so there's that element too but then feeling this pressure of like, oh my God, now I feel more overwhelmed. I feel like I have more stress in my life because I have money that I feel like I should be doing something with. Like, don't just sit on it. You're going to like, you're just going to waste it or don't leave it there. You won't be able to trust yourself. You're going to spend it on stuff that you're going to regret later. And yeah, it was just this interesting thing of like, oh, I just thought my life would be so much better if I just had more money to go and do all these things. And it was really interesting because a lot of the things I had on a list of like, okay, when we sell the house, I'm going to go do X, Y, Z. When... I had the money, I looked at them so differently and I was like, I don't even know if I really want to do that anymore. Right. I just created this whole fantasy in my head that I'm I'm missing out on this and if only I could just do this, I would live such a better life. And it's like, oh, it's actually quite different when you know you can really have and do anything. Like, Do you even really want to do it? And so I created this whole fantasy in my head and so there was that aspect. But, yeah, it was the, the holding capacity that I'm, I'm I'm seeing is in different areas of my life too um and one of the like coolest things is I think a lot of the way people relate to money they relate to food as well especially in regards to scarcity and and having too much and compulsion and binges and mm. yeah it's, it's super interesting when like I said once you find a pattern in one area like hmm, how else is this showing up you've you've had your challenge you've, you've mentioned a bit something around challenges with your weight yep. before yeah and 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 food and you you became a nutrition and fitness coach yep. and um is there anything that you've learned about that from so if 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 my shadow are things that I'm hiding from myself and I can't see yep. or that I'm unaware of ha, did you identify anything around any shadow aspect of that in terms of your relationship to food body image weight yep. that kind of stuff that you yeah, can share so much and i think um and this has only really come to my consciousness in the last few months is, you know, many of us choose our professions um, unknowingly from a shadow work lens to further hide and suppress shadows that we're not, we're not looking at. So oh. a lot of people that become fitness and nutrition coaches haven't actually fully addressed their shadows in the way that they, you know, relate to exercise or, or food and, it's coming from an actual unhealed place and, and we find our ego loves to be seen in a certain light in our profession. Um, you know, even thinks in people in the medical industry that, you know, want to be like the, the good person or whatever, like, you know, a policeman or whatever, you know, they're, the, they're, they're in a role where it's about doing the right thing and, you know, following all the rules but they've got all these shadows of them that they haven't looked at where they don't want to follow the rules. They're a rule breaker at heart, but they get to hide it in their profession. Mm. So when I sort of realised, I was like, ooh, isn't that an interesting motive? Like, you know, I can see parts of myself that I, I hadn't really fully let, looked at. There was equally a part of me that knew that my soul wanted to, you know, share what I was realising, but there was so much unhealed, unmet stuff. Um, and... You know, there's so much to weight loss. There's obviously um, the practical side of it of actually knowing how to effectively lose weight and, you know, not quote-unquote follow a diet but actually understand the rules of energy balance and how to eat it, um, a diet of 
without constricting yourself and restricting food groups, like there's definitely still, I think, so much miseducation in there that needs to be addressed. Um, but I also think there's so much that not a lot of even fitness coaches address because they haven't looked at it in themselves, and that used to be me, of <clears throat> why you want to lose weight. Why do you constantly gain weight and regain weight? Why do you not keep weight off? Um, and so I really thought the reason that I was always in a yo-yo cycling diet and, and a big part of it was because I didn't actually have a sustainable way of eating that I could follow. So, you know, you do your diet, diets, any diet will work that you can follow. But the moment you stop following it, it's very unlikely that you um, maintain your results. So there was that side of it. But then I, I found the answer. I understand energy balance. I understand how to maintain, you know, I know what calories I need to lose weight. I know what calories I need to be on to um, maintain weight. I know what energy output I need. I know I don't need to um, avoid any certain food groups. Like I literally can have it all. I had it all. And yet I still found my way back to gaining weight. And I denied those shadows for a very long time until this year where I really faced it and thought to myself, why the hell am I back here when I know better? And so the shame was huge because I was like, you're a coach, right? Like you are an expert in this field. How have you let yourself go? Because there was all of these shadows and there was all of these parts of me that, you know, I didn't know that there was, um, that I was, that I could still be a victim to my weight gain stories and always being the girl that struggled to lose weight. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't lean into that part of myself when I'd lost weight now. There was nothing for me to whinge about. I couldn't seek connection in that way with people. And so there was a lot of things that I realized like, oh, wow, okay, it's not just about knowing what to eat and how much to eat. That's a big part of it. But also what is my motive? Um, you know, I, 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 why, like why wasn't I staying consistent to my habits and patterns? Because I no longer had pain as a motivator. Um, <clears throat> I no, long, no, no, no longer had, you know, the secondary gain of, you know, seeking connection and being able to relate to people like, oh, I struggle with my weight too. Don't worry, I'll help you. You know, I, mm. I wasn't that victim anymore, but I couldn't, I couldn't stay in that. I couldn't hold it. So again, I could see all these patterns where I'm like, oh, I can't hold money. I couldn't hold my weight maintenance from an energetic level and I was like ah oh, I've got to build my window of tolerance and my capacity to hold success and to actually mm. no longer be in the stories of the victim right. so I can lose I as a nutrition coach I know what to do so then I put these things in action and I lose the weight and so then I've got a measure of success yep I can show can everyone I, can I hold that success yep. like can I hold the money yeah right so I can achieve it but now that I've achieved it that's the interesting thing too because motivation drops off once you achieve a goal. Yeah, that's it. Like I had nothing to motivate me anymore. Right. So then I was like, oh. And then I was like, how, like do people still think I'm good or like do I need to like put weight back on and lose it again so I can share those before and afters and people go, wow, look what you've done. Like I was looking for validation and I'm like, I'm not getting it anymore. Mm. So And this was all unconscious. And so there was so much to it and I – I chose probably for the first time to sit in it before running back to dieting again, but it was really interesting. I worked with a few coaches at the time and, um, you know, most of them were saying, were saying, you know, you shouldn't diet again. You should really just like um, sit in this and, and get the lessons out of it, which I did. But I got to a point where I was like, okay, now I'm just choosing to be a victim of this. Like I know that I'm going to feel better if I lose weight and I don't think there's a problem with that. This time though, I'm doing it with a conscious choice and I'm not doing it to run 
from something unconsciously. I've sat in these shadows. I've faced them. But I also don't need to stay here to prove anything to myself. And I'm I'm falling back into the victimhood now. Like I don't feel comfortable at this weight. So I'm going to lose weight even though I had, you know, coaches telling me I don't advise you to do that. And I was like, hold on a second. I'm giving away my power again. Like I can make these decisions for myself and I can make a loving choice. And so that's what I've done. And, and, and I now feel like on top of it where I'm like, okay, I understand that you know, there's these shadow motives that we need to address. And I, I can see, I can, I, I can translate that in my coaching now. And so I coach very differently now because I'm like, all right, when someone comes to me, I'm like, all right, before we, I can tell you what to do. I can show you how to diet. I can get that weight off you, but your chances of maintaining it are very slim if we don't work on the, the behind the scenes stuff right now. And I need, I need to, we need to dig in this and I need to let that rush and that scarcity mindset go, like just sit with me for a minute first and let's unpack what got you here, what have you done in the past, what's your journey like, been like with your body, you know, have you lost weight before, why didn't you maintain it, how did you feel, like, so there's so much, you know, I think we can just rush into losing weight, and we're not actually understanding the motives, and there's two sides of it, there's the practical side of it, and a lot of people are completely miseducated, and so the diets they've done have been horrible, and that's why they've gained weight, because they've gone back to old habits, so there's definitely that side of it, but I think not a lot of coaches address and talk about that, because I don't think they've faced their shadows in that too. So again, I could have seen that as the worst thing that happened to me. And I did at the time. I will say that. I was like, why the hell is this happening to me? But now I'm like, oh, what a gift. What a gift. Because now that's not going to be my experience anymore. Now I feel a lot more neutral in my relationship to a lot of things, but in particular to my body. I'm no longer seeking these highs and then inevitably coming back to these lows. I'm looking for neutrality. And so... It's been a very interesting experience and I, and I think it's changed the whole way that I want to coach now and I come from things that are more of a neutral than riding these highs and lows all the time. Yeah. Um, I've had my own little weight loss journey recently. I've lost eight kilos in the last year. And I don't know that I was specifically setting out to lose weight. I was, I was wanting to get fitter. And um, for me, I noticed a few things. One was that, I need to have a plan because without a plan, I was going to fail. And I and my partner helped me with this. So if there were foods in the house that were going to make me gain weight, then I was going to eat them. And that's still the case. So if, if I bring it home, I'll eat it. So the idea for me, if, if I want to avoid certain foods, is not bring it home. Yep. So I shop way differently than I used to shop. And so now in my house... There are very little in the way of sweet snacks or things like that or carbs or things that would, would normally make me gain weight. And so for me it was about, well, I just need to not bring it home. And so that was one habit that I introduced. And then um, looking at my motivation. So I kind of have two motivations for getting in shape. One is personal because um, you know, I'm going to be a papa now and that you know I want to be um, healthy and fit for my child. But the other one was... Um, uh, another motivator for me is that um, I'm a coach and um, I'm in my 60s and a lot of my clients are men in their 30s, uh, half my age, and I see one of my roles as like a mentor or a role model. And so part of the reason I'm getting in shape is to to show younger guys who are maybe out of shape, look, if I can do it at 62, mm, anyone can. you can do yeah. it at 30. Yep. So it's also you know, part of my, my business brand is that I want to be fit and in good shape. And so so when I look at what's my shadow or what's my struggle around 
weight gain and food, I keep it fairly simple. And for me, it's like, I see people who, I don't see obesity as a disease or a condition or an illness. I see it as a food addiction. Yeah, well, it's a byproduct as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't say no to certain foods or to certain volumes of food or whatever yeah, it is. I don't, food, I yeah. don't think, I think it's, I, I, I just can't say no. And yeah. so it's just a byproduct of an accumulation of certain habits. Yeah, and I don't even see addiction as a disease. No. I see addiction as not being able to say no. Mm. So it's just a behavioural thing. Yeah. Like I have a hard time saying no to some things, mm. therefore I become addicted to them. Yeah. And so a lot of the work I'm doing when I'm coaching people is working on their saying no muscle. Because mm. they're saying no muscle is very weak. Yeah. They say yes then. to many things and they don't feel that they have the power to be able to say no. So I'm just coaching and training them, look, just say no and sit with what comes up. Yeah. You, you, you trying to avoid feeling something that if I say no to this, I'm going to feel a certain way. I don't want to feel that way. Mm. And so it's about training them to be able to, to be okay and comfortable with the word no. Yeah. <laughs> Both like, giving a no and, and hearing a no. Yeah. And it is, it comes back to that capacity, right? That window of tolerance for discomfort and mm. saying no and holding no. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that can be related to food as well. And, and food is the hardest, I guess, addiction, if you want to call it, to break because we need it to survive. We literally cannot avoid it. Yeah. So, you know, as much as you can not buy things and you can somewhat control that environment, you can't just like fully turn your head away from food like you can, you know, with alcohol and drugs or whatever. Like you, you can find yourself surviving without even having to touch it or look at it. Whereas food, you, you just can't. It has to be. So I actually feel like if we can repair our relationship to food, it can be one of the most profound experiences oh, yeah. because it will it will teach you so much that you can apply in other areas of your life. And, and I think it's often the last place people go for, for healing because, again, they have to choose to say no to those things that – uh, right now, giving them that quick hit fix, like that quick fix hit of, you know, things. And if you understand foods and, you know, what I assume the foods that you're avoiding are the ones that have been scientifically curated to have a chemical reaction in our brain that leaves us wanting for more. So it's not you. It's the millions and billions of dollars they pay for the top scientists in the world to have, you know, Cadbury taste as good as it is because it, it, it designed that. And this is just how warped the health industry is you know they're literally creating the fact that we need to rely on so many medications because healthy people are not profitable so let's give them all the reasons to stay unhealthy and it is you know if you don't understand this you you, you won't get it but junk food the reason that it's hard um is because it's designed that way so uh, it's not to say you can't have it and there's a lot of things that you can do by like you know having a high protein diet so you're actually fully satisfied and so you're you know satiety and hunger hormones are actually regulating in the way that they can there's like so many things that you can do to minimize the effect of those um perfectly cur curated foods so they can be an experience and sometimes avoiding them altogether isn't necessarily the best long-term thing to do if you can't do it all the time my thing is if you can't do something all or majority of the time for the foreseeable future it will not work because the moment you can't see yourself doing it anymore those results will stop in that capacity so what you do you must be able to do it so if that works for you awesome but the moment that it's not then it's like you need to face those right instead of completely avoiding those foods well can I build my tolerance to them can I have a little bit every day can I desensitize myself to that experience um 
you know, we can learn so much from food and, and, and our ability to hold things and to feel things and sit with it rather than trying to numb, suppress. Like emotional eating is so big, but it can be such a window to places where we need to go to heal instead of running to food to, to fix and suppress. And I can see why a lot of children would do that. And then these, you know, habits form and, and you know, I can see these patterns playing out. But it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to use food as as that it can be for so many other things and, and it's about finding a real healthy balance like I said that neutrality you know seeing food for fuel but understanding that there is you know a beautiful palatable experience as well and there are some foods that taste amazing that aren't great for us and it's like you can you can have it all it's just you got to be able to I guess you know con- control yourself in those environments I think that people are temperamentally vary in terms of their ability to delay gratification yeah and mm. some people want instant gratification and they don't have good boundaries around that. So I have to have it and I have to have it now. Yes. And if that's, that's if, if that's with food, then that's a trap. And are you aware of the marshmallow experiment? No. This is a, a psychological experiment done where um, – so they the, – the psychologist who was also the person testing in the experiment would be in a room and they would invite young children – I think they were like between four and seven or four and eight, around that age group. They would invite them to come into the room and there was a plate and uh, the plate had, uh, let me see, was it, um, there was a marshmallow on the plate and they, they would say to the child, I'm going to leave the room and when I come back, if there's a marshmallow still sitting there, I'll, I'll put a second marshmallow there and you can have two. If I come back and the marshmallow's gone, then you just get one. That was basically the the setup of the design of the experiment, and then they um, would you know film how you know they, they would leave the room, but there was a camera in the room, and you would see <laughs> these kids. Some would pick up the marshmallow and smell it, and like take a little nibble <laughs> out of it and yeah, put it back. Thinking and, process. And some yep. would just sit there and just look at it, and others would just grab it as soon as they left the room and gobble it up. And, mm, you know, the children had different you know abilities to Sponsors, delay gratification. Yeah. And then some could sit there and waited the whole time and they came back and got a second marshmallow. And then they, it was a longitudinal study, so they, they looked at how these children did over time and you know, explored them you know, years down the track. And by the time they hit their 20s and 30s, they, they re-interviewed some of these children and they discovered that the ones that were able to delay gratification generally did better in life, went on to go to 100%. school and university and get better jobs. And, and the ones that weren't able to to delay their gratification didn't do as well. Yep. There was more of those that maybe, you know, had addiction issues or got into petty crime or had dropped out of university or, or down and out. Or So there is this thing about being able to delay gratification that's important. Yep. And then, then you wonder, well, is that something that can be trained mm. <laughs> or are you just stuck with that? But I, I think it can be trained and that's why when I'm coaching people – in being able to say no, that's what I'm teaching them. Is look, if yeah. you can say no to this, then you're going to be able to say yes to other things. Mm. And you can develop that muscle, but you have to be able to say no and sit with what comes up because we tend to want to avoid uncomfortable feelings. And what happens is if we say no to something, there's this FOMO or fear of missing out or I'm not going to get what I want or scarcity or whatever it is, and I don't want to sit with that and manage that, so I'm just going to do the thing. Mm. And this is what's behind addiction. You know, I'm, I've worked yeah. quite a lot in addiction um, in, my, in my career. You know, I don't see addiction as a disease. Uh, it's a behavioural thing. Mm. 
you know, um, I worked at one of the most expensive drug and alcohol treatment centres on the planet, well, the most here in Byron, wow. the, the sanctuary. And they were great at getting people off substances, but they didn't have a good track record for keeping people, people off. Yeah. Yeah. Because people need coaching mm. in how to say no. Yeah. And um, I, I think ideally that's a parent's job. Yeah. And not all parents are good at that. Some parents overindulge their children, say yes to everything, and maybe it helps setting up that instant gratification. Yeah, I can habit. definitely see myself wanting to do that, just looking for the quick fix, the mm. quick stop and the quick suppress. But we don't teach them anything, right? We don't, yeah, we don't teach them how to hold discomfort of like mm. having to say no. And I, and I am, one thing I think I do really well is, is really trying to um, improve or, you know, expand my. Uh, kids relationship to food and and we don't restrict anything in our house in in um like complete totality um we still buy some junk food items they're not things we have all the time but i i particularly purposely expose my children to them in my controlled home environment so that i can teach them desensitize them so because we think oh we'll just restrict our kids from that but restriction to me causes addiction because it's this this overwhelm and these micro moments of all those moments that we were told we can't have it mm. and now that i can i'm like right. this, you know this yeah. hungry dog that's just gonna unleash mm. and so you know i can see in the ways that that my mum, who just literally did her best tried to do that because you know i suffered you know with, with being overweight as a child and i can see now a lot of that would have been emotional eating um and yeah i'm trying to sort of my intention is to desensitize my children and, and to teach them and to talk about like, yeah, I know you want more than one piece of the chocolate or whatever, one bar. Um, it tastes so good, but it's also not mm -hmm. the best food for us and it doesn't give them energy. And sometimes they go a little bit overboard, you know, you're at a party or whatever and they say it for themselves. Oh, I feel sick. And I, I praise them or I encourage them when they say like, I'm done. And, I actually love that, which is a lot of parents are not like that. They're like, you will finish your meal and you will, no. you will, you will not waste that. I'm like, good on you for listening to your body. Mm. Who am I to say that you need to eat that certain amount? So there's a lot of things that I do that I, I'm trying not to be dogmatic about and I'm not always perfect. Um, but I haven't ever pressured my kids about around food and they're what I consider really great eaters. And also, what do they see me do? A lot of the foods they like is because I eat them. And I've never forced them. They just want to try it or, you know. Um, so I think there's a lot we can learn from just, you know, exposing ourselves to things and, and learning, like you said, that how to say no. And I think, honestly, the delayed versus instant gratification is something that still so many people have no idea about. And if you want to result in any area of your life, you need to master that because everybody's looking for instant gratification. Yeah. And, like, especially when it comes to health and fitness, it is all delayed gratification. <laughs> what you do today, you will not see those results for, like, two years. Mm. Because especially when it comes to something like building muscle or, you know, um, improving your health, it takes so long. And if you're not willing to do it, when you can't see or feel those effects yet, but know that they're accumulating and you will feel them as long as you don't stop, what is motivating you then? Mm. And so that's why I think a lot of people fail as well because they just, they're looking for that instant and the moment that they're not getting it, they stop and they don't realise that it was there. They just weren't seeing it. And so, you know, that's another major thing that I really um, – expose my clients to when they come to me and I'm and I'm and I, I've seen a shift in the clients that have come to me in the last 12 months they want to come to me specifically for the fact that I don't buy or sell them into quick fixes 
I'm like, yeah, no, you need to want to change your identity as a person. You want to actually change your education. You want to actually learn more about yourself. You're not just here for the quick fix. You've done those. You know they don't last. You want something different. And they know that, you know, I'm that person that's like, oh, you're actually sharing different stuff. And I'm, I'm curious to that. And I'm like, well, you're my person. I did the quick fix stuff for years and I had a real quick turnover of clients. We had heaps of clients, but they weren't long-term. Whereas like this year I've had long-term clients, less clients, but I'm like, I prefer that mm. because it's, it's true meaningful work and, and change. And, and yeah, it's been really cool to see. Um, I love the way yeah, that you're doing motherhood when you describe how you are with your kids. I, I, I picture these kids that are getting a really balanced kind of view of life and, and um, finding their own way, but having the safety and, and, um, you know, um, your eyes on them, but it's, it's like you're not coming from a very dogmatic place or strict disciplinarian and allowing them to find their own way, yep. both through emotional regulation but through food and eating and stuff like that. Um, so another thing that you said, and we'll wind up soon, another thing that you said is that you were interested in shadow work because you wanted to know more about it so that you could utilise some of it with your clients in your coaching. And so... Um, what so shadow work for people who aren't familiar with it can sound a bit dark and a bit scary and I don't know what that is and I'm not interested in it and you've done some shadow work Um, how would you describe it to people who don't know what it is but could possibly benefit from it how would you describe it to how would you encourage your clients to approach shadow work and how would you how would you promote that to them well like what language would you use mm, it's like because yeah. like I, I i struggle with this still struggle yeah, yeah because, because the whole concept of shadow art's dark it's scary i don't want to go there and and yep. that's why it's there and so it's not an easy conversation to have to enroll people yeah in, in doing their shadow work but you've benefited i i'm not going to stop because i know all the benefits that i've gotten from doing my own shadow work yeah but it is an interesting conversation to share with people so what would you say to people who have never done shadow work? How would you enrol them in it? That's a really good question. Um, I think the best way I can describe it, there's a few ways that both uh, my words and, and other words that I've heard from other coaches in the shadow work space. Um, it's just shining a light on the unowned, unexpressed, suppressed parts of self, which I think is just an inevitable byproduct of um, – Growing up, I think no matter how conscious your parents are um, as a society, and like you said, it's just a normal, it's actually a normal healthy coping mechanism for our, um, us to create a persona because it protects us, it keeps us safe. Um, so it's understand, it's it's working with the natural byproducts of your body, but also being able to dissect where perhaps, you know, that part of you that trying to keep you safe is also trying to keep you small. Um, so that's kind of where I see it's because otherwise we get stuck in this you know one dimensional and, and I think you know you know you're in the shadow work or the ego work when you're very one dimensional about things things are either black or white or wrong or right um or this way or that way um when we're so righteous in something it shows us that we have a shadow there because we're not able to see another point of view so I heard another coach say that shadow work is being committed and willing to see something new whilst also holding you know, feeling convicted in what we already know. And so it's just this constant 
willingness to see something new over and over again. Um, and I think if you can apply this into your relationships, into your parenting, your business, coaches, clients, um, you can hold a healthy level of conviction in what you already know and things that you're doing really well. And like, that's okay. It's not to say that, you know, there's, there's not parts of you that are thriving and doing great, but can you also be open to seeing something new and to be questioning things that you've done or said? Um, and that's so freeing. Like, I would consider myself a previous good girl, like really followed the rules, you know, was a, you know, good student and um, a good person. Like I, I wouldn't consider myself a rule breaker and I really thrived off that, you know. Um, and then having kids is blown that out of the water for me you know even having a home birth is you know so like people were like oh my god that's so brave and like that's so taboo and um you daredevil you and I was like this is so interesting and I, and I would have viewed that previously I would have viewed that um you know there's been so many things that my children have forced me to look at that I've realized oh I'm quite dogmatic in this um and now that I know I'm like oh bit of a shadow there because I'm blocking myself from expansion because I'm so righteous anywhere that you think you're righteous you're blocking yourself from expansion because you're stuck in a one-dimensional way and I think that's what shadow work is it's being able to see things from a multi-dimensional lens um, so that you can experience other things otherwise we we think we know what's best for us but we actually don't um, so I think that's what shadow work means to me um and you only get like deeper, richer connection because what you can give to others to be able to see their point of view, they now can give back to you. You know, you're not then being met with other righteous people who don't see your point of view. And isn't it interesting that we're like so righteous in our point of view that we think that everyone should see our point of view, but that means that then they would have to let their point of view go, but we're not willing to do that. Mm-hmm. And so that's shadow work, right? It's like, oh, I'm expecting people to do all this stuff that I'm not even prepared to do, right? And also what I've realised, that the things that like piss me off the most about other people or um, about my kids that really trigger me, I'm like, oh my God, I have not met these parts in myself. Mm-hmm. That's why they annoy me. And I think that's what I kind of unraveled with you when I'm like, you know, one of the questions were, um, you know, what annoys you about other people? I'm like, ugh, people who are in like this victim mindset. <laughs> and I'm like, lols, all the ways, denying all the ways that I'm still choosing to be a victim. Mm. And so it's like, instead of being righteous in like, ugh, those kinds of people really annoy me. It's like, ooh, you actually are that kind of person. You just haven't, you just haven't faced that. It's in your shadow. Um, and it, And where people can go wrong in shadow work is staying in the shame when they realise a shadow. They're like, oh, my God, have I not seen this before? Oh, my God. I can't believe that I've told myself I'm an honest person but I've been lying in this way all along and like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And they just stay in there Mm. and they just use shame as a distraction. It's like, okay, can you just see it from an observational lens and not make it about yourself? Like you just become self-obsessed and self – just more shadow. Yeah, know, just, you're beating just, themselves like up. Like the shadow loves that. Mm. Like, let's just stay here because then you're not going to transcend through that shadow. Um, so I think it's just that willingness to see things in yourself that perhaps you haven't seen or you've judged others for. Um, I can tell that I've got shadows when I'm super judgmental of others and I'm critical. That's telling me that there's, you know, unmet, unexpressed things in myself that I haven't looked at. So once you know it and mm. then you can use it, you, you you can use this information 
and you can fast track your healing and your expansion and you can also just love and accept more people and be more accepted and loved by others mm. because you know then you're meeting people and you're putting yourself in spaces where other people see and acknowledge their own shadows and they're not judging you anymore and it's like oh we all actually get to just see ourselves for more of who we are and we get to experience ourselves more as who who we are and it's actually just so beautiful and, and yet you know, people don't want to step into shadow work. So <laughs> hopefully that helps people who are like, what is shadow work? I don't want to do this dark stuff. It's right. not actually dark. No. Um, you just got to be willing to not take it so personal and just understand mm. it's a normal byproduct of growing up and trying to adapt and fit. If we don't fit into society, we are a threat of our survival. So if we look back into the tribes, if we don't belong in the tribes, they're going to abandon us. So of course we're going to create a persona. We're going to create a way of doing things and to be accepted um, until we grow up and realize like, hold on a second actually what I want to continue to do is there another way of doing things and you know being and um that's going to look different for everyone um you know it's normal for us to come to a time to be like oh my god I haven't realized I've been engaging all these behaviors and blaming other people when it was actually me like that's okay you don't have to make it personal just understand it was a byproduct and now you get to do something different about it awesome it's a great explanation it's simply put I think for me it's like being able to see all sides of self and so you know you could see yourself as, I can be a really amazing mother. Yep. And in the next breath you can say, hey, you know, I can be pretty lame as well. Yes, that's another thing that you told me that like instead of saying I am this, it's mm. like I can be and yeah. I can also can be. And I'm like, okay, I can be extremely consistent, mm. organised, type A personality. I can be high functioning and I can also be super lazy. I mm. can be unmotivated. I can be spiteful. I can be judgmental. I can compare myself to others. I can be jealous. Like I can be all those things and I'm not – any of them. Yeah. I just can be them sometimes. And that's okay. And yeah. I can even love and accept those parts of self. Yeah. And rather than reject them. And I can be an awesome coach and I can be an ineffective and lazy coach. Yeah, I can coach. be a crap coach. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can be all those things. Cool. And then it's like, oh, I don't have and to it's kind of, so much of it's, myself it's now. It's liberating. It's free. It's yeah. freeing. Yeah, it, and then you also find that you end up actually doing things even better because there's less pressure. Yeah. And, and less judgment. And the moment you catch yourself where you're like, ooh being a little bit lazy again, you can pick yourself up and you're not like, oh my God, I'm lazy. People are going to think I'm lazy. Mm. It's like, yeah, I can be sometimes. Just drop that perfect, perfect persona bullshit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> They're all just distractions, right? They're literally just distractions. They are. Awesome. I think we'll wrap it up here, Rachel. Um, it's been real pleasure and um, sharing with you and hearing your stories. And um, I really love what you've brought to shadow work and, and, I'm excited about what that makes possible for you and your family and for you as a coach going forward. And um, f- from my own perspective, I hope you do a bit more in the singing space. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I good think you've got a, a beautiful <laughs> voice. And also, yeah, explore that that thing that the psychedelic opened up in you in terms of the music and the music mm. for healing and the vibration, the singing bowls. Yep. Um, yeah, maybe yeah, explore that a little further because, oh my God, I've been in some ceremonies where the sound like there's there's nothing better than being in a psychedelic ceremony where the sound is creating the visions yeah it's and the so visions cool. are so amazing the combination would be just like yeah it is i know i know it's just mind-blowing it's mm. so beautiful okay it's been great having you on thank you for coming all this way and um giving up half your day for this and uh thank you so much yeah. all thank right. you it's been awesome awesome Pete Isaiah is an Australian trauma therapist and integration coach. You can find him at isaiahcoaching.com and connect with him on Instagram at isaiahcoaching. This podcast was produced by Quinika Davis, 
edited by Beck Isaiah and Luca Young, and the score was produced by Joshua Richards. <laughs>